Well, good morning. Today, uh, it's kind of a, a bittersweet day for us uh, here at Harmony because after 16 years of serving as our pastor of congregational care, uh, we are announcing uh, Dan Dingus's official retirement. It's here, finally. It's here. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Uh, have you been waiting for this day for a long time? Or? Uh, yeah. No, <laughs> I shouldn't answer. Yeah. So... Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, it, it's bittersweet because we have been just so, so blessed uh, by this man and by his wife, Ajana, and their faithful ministry here. Uh, they have spent, um, it, it's just really uh, hard to even measure how many hours they have spent visiting people uh, in, in the hospital, uh, holding people's hands in the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, uh, praying over people, ministering, uh, conducting funerals. And they have been such a blessing to so, so many people here, not only in, in our church, but really in southeast Iowa uh, as a whole. Uh, and, and Danny and John actually have been a part of Harmony for a lot longer than 16 years. They actually came to Harmony in 1976. Um, and just a little perspective on that, I was three years old um, when they came to Harmony. In fact, uh, uh, Danny and John have a son that's uh, three days uh, difference, in, in, but I think he's three days older than me, so yeah. I believe. Yeah. So um, anyway, so they could be my parents is basically uh, what, I'm, what I'm saying here. And so um, we just wanted to take some time uh, just to honor them, to show some appreciation for them. Uh, we want to encourage you next Sunday evening at our Danville campus, uh, we're going to have an open house for you to come and give your, your personal greetings and just to thank them for the ministry that they have had uh, to you and to the church. But, but here's what I, I want you to know. Um, they are just such a great example of humble, faithful uh, servants. So they don't want to be up here right now. They never want the spotlight. They just want to serve in the background. And they have done that so, uh, so well, and we have been so, so uh, blessed by that. And I just want to say, especially to our, to our younger people here, we need more uh, Danny and John Dinguses um, in the days ahead. And they are a great couple to be able to look uh, up to and even just to model uh, your life at. And I am, I am very, very confident, and we, we're not looking for this day to happen anytime soon, all right? But the day that they see Jesus face to face, they're both going to hear, well done, good and faithful service. And so why don't we just take a moment and show them some love here uh, today, all right? Well, well deserved. And so just uh, uh, one other note, they're, they're not going anywhere, okay? So they're not moving to Florida or Arizona. They're staying here in Denmark, all right? Uh, foreign country in and of itself. But, um, <laughs> but, but um, they're going to continue ministering, particularly to our senior uh, saints, um, and you're going to see them around. And so they're going to continue to bless us. And, and we have a gift uh, here uh, that we gonna give them just a little bit of a token of our uh, love for, for them. And uh, they like to get out, and hopefully the weather will warm up. You can get on that trike or motorcycle and take a trip uh, and to, to go uh, spend some time uh, together and then come back and love on your kids and your grandkids. So, and a bunch of them here at our Danville campus today. Um, and so uh, we're thankful that they can 
can celebrate with us. So let's pray now and let's thank the Lord. We need to take time to do that for the dinguses and then pray for them um, in the days ahead. All right. Uh, Lord, uh, we do thank you for, for Danny and Jana. Um, and uh, they have been such a gift uh, to our church from you. They're a measure, they're a sign of your grace and your love for this body. Uh, we thank you that they have been um, your hands um, to, to love on, uh, to minister to, to care for us in our most difficult days and, and then at other times in, in our greatest days. Uh, and we thank you, Lord, for all the love and the care that they have given and the way that you have built your church through them. Lord, we want to pray for the days ahead that you will continue to use them in a great way, uh, that you will give them energy and strength to serve you well, perhaps in a little bit of a different way, but well nonetheless. And Lord, I want to pray that you will raise up uh, people uh, like Danny and John more and more in the days ahead in Danville, Fort Madison, in Burlington, uh, Lord, to, to minister and to love and to care. And Lord, we, we thank you again for the opportunity that we have to be uh, the body of Christ, the church. We pray now as we dig into your word that your Holy Spirit will come and bring conviction where we need it. We'll bring comfort where we need it. We'll illuminate the gospel for us so it might shape us into a people who represent you faithfully in this world. It's in Jesus Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. I want to give him one more hand. Okay, go ahead and turn your Bibles uh, to Ephesians 2, uh, where today we're going to look at a passage that marks a transition uh, in this wonderful letter. Uh, over the last five weeks in Ephesians, we've seen Paul uh, laying out very powerfully the gospel. Uh, and now in the second half of Ephesians 2 and in the first half of Ephesians 3, we're going to see how uh, Paul begins to reveal one of the primary things that the gospel produces, and that's the church. So we're going to be talking about the church, and I, I need to be clear right away that when I say the church, I, I'm not referring to a building, uh, I'm not referring to an organization, and, and I'm not even just referring to Harmony Bible Church. Uh, when I talk about the church, I'm referring to the body of Christ, to the universal church, to all believers of all time. Now, I, I know that the top of the church may not get you all that excited. I'm guessing that none of you are right now going like, woohoo, we get to talk about the church today. Like you're, you're just dying to talk about the church. In fact, given all that you've got going on right now, you might even be wondering how this is relevant to your life at, at all. But I just want to tell you, that I believe that there are hardly anything, there's hardly anything that is more relevant to your life. You know, today, uh, there's a pretty significant apathy when it comes to the church, uh, both in our culture at large, but also quite amazingly within the church itself. Recent studies on American spirituality tell us two seemingly contradictory things. They tell us that in our country, spiritual interest is at an all-time high, and yet at the same time, church attendance is at its lowest levels in decades. For example... A recent survey found that 81%, so 8 out of 10 people in America, believe it's possible to be not only a Christian, but a very good Christian without attending church. In other words, most people think you can be a Christian without any real connection to the body of Christ. Now, I have to be honest with you that from what I can tell, 
This seems to be true of a lot of people who call Harmony Bible Church their home. We have hundreds of people who only occasionally attend. By that I mean every couple of months or so. And even many of our regular attenders are only here a little more than half of the time. Now, honestly, in some ways, I find this apathy understandable. I mean, on the one hand, we're really busy people, right? We've got a lot of things that are competing for our time, and it's really hard to just carve out that time for the church. But more significantly, the church today has a lot of issues. Let's just be honest, all right? We have a lot of issues. We have issues of morality, integrity, and unity, just to name a few. And as a result of these issues, there are many of us who have had painful church experiences. You probably had a painful church experience. I've had many painful church experiences. And so if this is you, I can understand why you might be lukewarm about the church. And yet, if I can borrow a phrase from the great Charles Spurgeon, the Bible would tell us that despite its issues, the church is the dearest place on earth. Can I say that again? The Bible would tell us that the church is the dearest place on earth. I realize that that right now you might have a hard time believing that. And if that's the case, that's okay. It's understandable. But here's what I'm hoping and praying is going to happen over the coming weeks as we study Ephesians. I'm hoping and praying that you're going to come to believe that the church really is the dearest place on earth. So with that said, we're going to read this morning a a rather long passage, all right? Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, all the way through verse 13 of chapter 3. Long passage, but I couldn't figure out how to break it up any smaller. And so we're going to study this passage this week and next week. Follow along with me now as I read. Paul says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, when Paul says Gentiles here, he's just referring to to non-Jews, okay? So there are Jews and there are non-Jews. He says, you non-Jews. Most of the church at Ephesus uh, were, were Gentiles. Most of those people were Gentiles, and that's obviously true for us. We're Gentiles here today, all right? We are what might be called the uncircumcision by the Jewish people, all right? Remember, verse 12, that you were at the time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, 
a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery is made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. There's a lot here, but in this passage, we can kind of summarize, okay, what Paul is telling us by understanding that he's talking about what it means to be a part of the church. And what it means to be part of the church can be summarized with the words access, peace, and membership. To be a part of the church means access, peace, and membership. Now we're going to talk about the first two of these things, okay? Access and peace today, and the next Sunday we'll come back and talk about the third, membership. Before, though, we look at what it means to be a part of the church, we first need to consider what it means to not be a part of the church. You, you note, in ver, note in verses 11 and 12 uh, of chapter 2 that Paul uses the word remember twice at the beginning of, of both verses. And he does so, okay, in order to, to remind us, to help us to remember what it means to not be a part of the church. And, and what does it mean to, to not be a part of the church? We'll, we'll look at verse 12 again. Remember that you were at that time, before you were a part of the church, you were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In summary, to not be part of the church means to be alienated from God and his people and have absolutely no hope that that's ever going to change. In, in other words, to not be part of the church means that you are in the most dire circumstances possible. So, so listen to this, Harmony. Uh, one of the reasons that we fail to see the church as the dearest place on earth is because we forget how dreadful it was not to be a part of the church in the first place. We don't see the church as dear because we don't, we don't remember, we don't grasp how dreadful it would be to not actually be a part of the church. Now, you probably know by now that my home uh, can be a rather... Um, might we say crazy, chaotic, a messy one. All right, so uh, there are seven people in my family, and uh, we might also say that all seven of us have rather strong personalities. 
There's only one of us who kind of is laid back and, and, and just, you know, it isn't all that, you know, you know drama-inducing maybe, uh, I should say. Um, but even he likes to stir up trouble a little bit. And so um, I'll just give you an example of how things kind of roll in our house on, on a pretty regular basis. Uh, the other day, the chief stir-upper in our family, uh, who will remain nameless, although he is the one who is most like me, all right, I don't know what that says, <laughs> But um, he was trying to stir things up, as he often does, and he was teasing Eva about being passive-aggressive. And, and so uh, I thought I would join on in, and, and just to be funny, I would say, uh, your mom's not passive-aggressive, she's just aggressive. <laughs> Which at that point, she just full-out backhanded me, all right? <laughs> Some of you have been wondering why I have this mark on my forehead, okay? Actually, I'm just kidding. It was worse than that, actually, but... Um, <laughs> Anyway, that's just kind of a normal, like, Tuesday afternoon at our house, all right? And, and so you also know that I'm uh, somewhat introverted and need my kind of downtime. And, and so between church things and home things, a little, uh, every once in a while it gets a little bit of overwhelming. I'm like, I wish I could just kind of be somewhere else. Uh, and so uh, every once in a while I uh, fail to appreciate uh, and fail to, to, to really uh, just be thankful for how wonderful it is to be a part of the family that God has given me and how dreadful it would actually be to not be a part of that family. And really what Paul is trying to do for us here is he's trying to show us how wonderful it is to be a part of the church by pointing out to us how terrible it would be to not be a part of it. Now then, what does it mean then to be a part of the church? Why is it so wonderful to be a part of the church? Well, take a look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. To be a part of the church means to have access to God. It means to no longer be alienated or separated from him, but to be able to live boldly and confidently in his presence. Paul repeats this theme twice more in our passage in verse 18 of chapter 2 and then in verse 12 of chapter 3. In fact, look at chapter 3, verse 12. In whom, that's Jesus, in Jesus we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. I told you at the beginning that there are a few things that are more relevant than the church. This here is one of the reasons. I know, um, I know, I know that you, you might sit here today with all types of issues and all kinds of problems. But here's what I can tell you, friends. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your biggest problem by far has been taken care of. Your biggest problem by far is gone. It's over. Never to be brought back again. You were separated from God, but now you have full access to him. And you will have full access to him forever. And what's more, you also now have th this access gives you the opportunity, the ability to go to him and get the help that you need with all the other problems that you have. In fact, this is what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 4.16 says this. It says, let us then, we're told, okay, we're encouraged, we're urged to with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Being part of the church is so relevant to your life because it means that your biggest problem has been taken care of and that you now have access to God in order to get the help that you need with all the other problems in life. 
Now, it's important that we don't miss how we have this access. How are we brought near to God? Well, notice at the end of verse 13, it says that we are brought near by the blood of Christ. We're no longer cut off from God because Jesus was cut off instead. Here's how the apostle uh, Peter puts it in his first letter. I, I love this verse. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that, that's him, for the unrighteous, that's you and me. Why? That he might bring us to God. Why did Jesus die on the cross? He died on the cross so that you who were separated from God might be brought back to him, might be brought near to him. When our sins had separated us from God, Jesus gave his life to bring us back to him. This is the ultimate reason the church is the dearest place on earth. The church is the dearest place on earth because it costs God dearly in order to create it. In fact, let me just ask you today, how can we possibly uh, treat with apathy what cost Jesus his life? Why should the church be dear to us? The church should be dear to us because it costs God everything in order that we might be able to be a part of it. In, in order that we might be brought to God. So the first thing it means to be part of the church is to have access to God. Here's the second thing that it means. It means to have peace. It means to have peace. Look at verses 14 through 17 again. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near." Now, now, you see the word peace repeated over and over again in these verses. And there are two aspects of peace that we see here. We see vertical peace, peace with God, and horizontal peace, peace with other believers. And what's the key to peace in both directions? Let me, let me ask you that. What's the key or who is the key to peace with God and peace with other believers? Who is it? It is Jesus. Notice what Paul says in verse 14. He is our Peace. The Greek that Paul uses here is emphatic because he wants to emphasize that peace is a person. Peace is not subjective. Peace is objective. So I can tell you this here today. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if through faith you have been united to Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, then you today have peace with God, whether you feel like it or not. You have that peace. And you also have peace with other believers. Now, how do we come to have this peace? And, and I just want to say this to you. If you're here today and you're saying, I don't really believe that I have peace with God. And, and I, I know that I don't have peace with, with, with Christians. How can I have that peace? Well, he, I'm going to tell you right now. Actually, Paul's going to tell you. Look at verse 16, all right? And we're going to walk very carefully through verse 16 as pretty much Every word is crucial. I was going to say this is one of the most important verses in the New Testament, but many of you just laugh at me when I say that anymore, all right? So it's, it's a crucial verse in the New Testament, all right? But, but notice what it says, okay? The end of verse 15 says, So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. 
Jesus, Paul says, makes peace for us by reconciling us to God through the cross. The word reconcile here is a very, very rich word, but its basic meaning is to turn hostility into friendship. Might want to write that down. Okay, reconcile. To reconcile means to turn hostility into friendship. Here's how Paul explains it in Colossians chapter 1. He says this, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin with the result that the hostility we had with God has been removed and we now experience a relationship of love and friendship with him. This is what the words holy and blameless and above reproach are are pointing to. Because of Jesus' death in our place, there is now nothing standing in our relationship with God. Nothing standing between us and our relationship with God. So there's no sin Okay, attributed to us, and there's no wrath attributed to God. So uh, maybe I could put it this way. Because of our sin, all right, we we are hostile in mind. That's what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 1. We're hostile in mind, okay, doing our evil deeds. We're hostile towards God in his way. God, on his part, is wrathful towards us because he's a holy God, and so he has to be angry at sin. And so he's hostile to us, we're hostile to him. But on the cross, Jesus took upon himself our sin. He he removed our sin from us. He took the penalty for our sin. He received God's wrath. So, So he satisfied God's wrath. God's wrath is out of the way, and our sin is out of the way. And so now we've been restored to a relationship of love and friendship with God. The relationship that we were originally created to have, but that sin had ruined and marred. You'll notice that at the end of verse 16, it says that Jesus killed the hostility. I love that. Don't you love that phrase? Okay. Through his death, Jesus put to death the hostility between us and God. And so that's the, the vertical aspect of peace. But, but what now about this horizontal aspect? How is Jesus, Jesus our peace with other believers? Back to verse 16. It says that Jesus reconciled us both to God in one Body. So, so let's talk about the one body and then about the both. What, what's Paul talking about here? Well, the one body is a metaphor for the church. There's lots of metaphors for the church in the New Testament, but the one that Paul uh, and the other authors of uh, the New Testament use the most often is the body. We are the body of Christ. So I'm not the body, and you individually aren't the body, but together, collectively, we are the body of of Christ. So Paul is saying he is united both in one body. Who are the both then? Well, let's talk context here uh, for a second. You may have noted as I read this earlier, this is somewhat of a complicated passage, but uh, let me see if I can try to explain it to you and then help, uh, help us to apply it to, to our situation, our circumstances. A huge issue in the first century church was the hostility between two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. Now, as I said earlier, right, the Gentiles really represent um, non-Jews. And so it's really representing the only two type of people there, there really 
were, and, and, and I don't even really believe are, but, but some people would say that even still are. There are Jews, all right, and there are Gentiles. And, and so there's a huge hostility in the culture in those days, and that kind of seeped into the church, and, and we see this playing out in a lot of the New Testament letters. Now, it's really, really hard uh, for me to express the animosity that existed between Jews and Gentiles in the first century. The Jews, uh, on their part, believed that they were exclusively the people of God, and that the Gentiles were unclean and evil. A common motto of the Jews was, the best of serpents crush, the best of Gentiles kill. Jews were forbidden uh, by law from helping a Gentile woman to give birth because that would bring another heathen into the world. In short, uh, Jews hated Gentiles and thought them unfit to be included in God's people. The Gentiles, of course, despised the Jews in return because, as you can imagine, they consider them to be arrogant and bigoted and, to quote one commentator, homicidal enemies of the human race. Now, the clearest picture of this animosity can actually be seen in verse 14 uh, when Paul refers to this dividing wall of hostility. This was actually a, a, a literal dividing wall. It was a literal 10-foot high stone wall around the Jewish temple that had an inscription that read, and I quote, no one of another nation to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple. And whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. So uh, for you Avenger nerds here, here's just a little note, keep you interested today. That uh, inscription is known as a thanatos or a death inscription, all right? In other words, you, you come in, you're not allowed in here, and if you come in here, you're going to die, and it will be your own fault, right? We're in, you're out, you need to stay out, and if you don't stay out, we're going to put you out, all right? That, that's basically what we're talking about here, and so, so can you see the hatred? Can you see the animosity? Can you see the hostility? However, right, and maybe I'll just point out to this, that was in the culture at large. Well, then in the church now, you have Jews who are believing and you have Gentiles who are believing and these people are coming into the church and that tension uh, had a tendency to come along with it. And so what does Paul say? Well, we'll note here in Ephesians 2, he says that through his death, Jesus has removed the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, that he has broken down the wall of division, that he has united both believing Jews and believing Gentiles into one body. He has made them both together his one people, his church. Now, here's what this means for us today. Okay, So, so we fast forward 2,000 years. What does this mean for us? It means two things. One, it means that as Gentiles, we are now a part of the people of God, a part of his church. We should read this passage with great joy today. Because now, Paul is telling us that we are heirs of the promise that God made to Abraham 3,000 years ago. That we are the people of God, that we have been included in the people of God, that we who were far off have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. Two, it means that we've been united with every other believer in Jesus, whether they are a Jew or a Gentile. Did you get that? We've been united with God, but we've also been united with everyone else who is a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, here's how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 3. Key, key passage. It says this, For as many 
of you as we're baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Let me explain what that means. Uh, baptized into Christ simply means you have placed your faith in Jesus, that you've been saved. All right? If you've been baptized into Christ, you've been saved. And if you've been saved, you have put on Christ. That means you've been united with him, union with Christ. We've talked a lot about that in Ephesians. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, I can tell that you're not getting how important and significant this is, okay? But if you uh, were a Gentile in the church at Ephesus and you were reading this for the first time, your heart would be leaping with joy. You would be shouting, hallelujah, amen, praise the Lord. Because up until that point, you may have thought, I'm not sure that I actually be a part of God's people. The Jews tell me that I can't. Now, Paul's saying that I, I can through faith in Jesus Christ, that Jews and Gentiles are united as the people of God. Now, listen carefully here because I want to talk about this a little bit more. Let's, let's leave this up here for a minute so just so that you can see this. Uh, I want to tell you what Paul is saying, all right, and what he's not saying. And what he's not saying here is that when we become a part of the church, that our ethnicity or gender or social status disappears. He's not saying that we stop being Hispanic or African American or Asian or Caucasian. He's not saying that we stop being male or female. And he's not saying that we stop being wealthy or poor or somewhere in the middle. What he's saying is that all of those things become secondary and our identity as children of God becomes primary. He's saying that the things that divide us have now been superseded by what unites us. And what unites us is the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So, so um, it really is hard for me to stress, I'm not even going to be able to do it today, how significant I think that this is in the current day and time um, in which we live. So, so let, me, let me try by explaining it this way. The things that divide us are the things in which we tend to find our identity. We tend to find our identity in things like our gender, our ethnicity, our country of citizenship, our social status, and uh, even in our political affiliation. And when we find our identity in any of these things, we will always, always find ourselves divided from those who don't share that identity. We find this happening at an alarming rate in the world today. And tragically, it's happening in the church almost as much as it is in the culture at large. All right, so, so you maybe heard this term tribalism. We've seen the rise of tribalism. We have a tendency to identify with our tribe, okay? There's our group of people. And, and when we're in a tribe, and anybody else who's not in our tribe, we have a, a, a difficulty with, okay? We get divided with. We, we fight and argue and, and bicker with. And, and here's the problem. If your tribe isn't your, your primary tribe, your first tribe, your most important tribe— isn't the fact that you are a child of God, that the church isn't our primary tribe, then you are going to be divided from your brothers and sisters in Christ. When you identify who you are primarily, okay, by something that is not part of the church, that's not identified with the church, you're going to be divided with other people who are in the church. And let me just say this, all right? This should not be the case 
Because as believers, we've been given a new identity, a greater identity, an identity that we share with other believers. The identity of a child of God as an heir of the promise that God made to Abraham all those thousands of years ago. Now, I want to finish today uh, by making an attempt to help us to, to pretty specifically apply this truth. And I just need to tell you, I need to warn you uh, that this is probably going to be hard and it might require you to do some soul searching in the days ahead. And, and I can say that uh, because it's causing me to do some soul searching and to wrestle deeply with how these things apply to my own life. So, so here's what I think that this means for us practically. Let me give you some examples. Uh, there's lots of other examples I could give, lots of ways that this applies. I'm just going to give you three. All right, so listen carefully here. The fact that believers are one in Christ means that we should experience a greater connection with a believer from a different country than we do with a non-believer from our own. I'm going to say that again. All right. We should experience a greater connection with a believer from another country than we should with a non-believer from our own. A few months ago, I introduced you to my friend Bosco. Bosco is a Sierra Leonean citizen. I am an American citizen, right? However, Bosco and I have a greater connection than I will ever have with someone who is an American but is not a believer. Why? Because both for Bosco and I, our primary country of citizenship is heaven, not the United States of America. Now, I, I know, by the way, I, I know that this is hard for, for some of us, all right? But, but let me just tell you this, if that's the case, if you're really wrestling with this, then this message is for you. You need to hear what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 2. We need to be Christians first and Americans second. I'd encourage you, in light of what we've seen in Ephesians 2 today, to evaluate if your identity is wrapped up more in your earthly citizenship or in your heavenly citizenship. What's more important to you, being a Christian or being an American? Now, now, by the way, I'm not saying that it's wrong to have pride in your American citizenship, to, to be thankful that you're American. But let me just tell you this. If your pride in being American makes you look down on those who are not Americans, you have an identity crisis. You should not look down on people who come from a different country thinking that because you're an American, you're any better than them. You are not. All right? We, as believers in particular, we are one in Jesus Christ. Here's another example, and one that's somewhat related to the last one. If you're a believer, you should experience a greater connection with a believer of a different ethnicity than you do with a non believer of your own. Now, I know this is a hard one today, uh, as there's a lot of tension between those of different ethnicities, but friends, this tension should be non existent amongst believers. And where it is in existence, we need to work really, really hard at killing it. Are you listening to me today? We need to hear this. There should not be tension between believers from different ethnicities. And where there is that tension, we should work really, really hard at killing it. Killing the hostility. Jesus died to kill it, and so we need to work really, really hard to see that that actually is taking place. We need to pursue the peace that Jesus died to give us. Now, quite honestly, we have a lot of room to grow in this at Harmony, uh, and I have a lot of room to grow at this. And if this is going to happen, 
it's going to require those of us in the majority culture. That's white, by the way, if you haven't noticed. All right? It's going to require us to work hard at welcoming and loving on those who don't look like us on the outside, but are the same on the inside. Now, now you might be saying, well, why do we have to work harder? Because, friends, that's what the gospel compels us to do. The ultimate insider, God, okay, worked really, really hard to include us, the ultimate outsiders. He welcomed and loved us, and we have an opportunity to model that by welcoming and loving on those, particularly those, okay, who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a lot more I could say and probably honestly need to say here, but for right now, let's just recognize that this is a huge area of growth for us. Here's a final example. And if your feathers aren't ruffled uh, yet, well, this one's probably going to do it for you, all right? I'm trying my best to be an equal opportunity offender today. <laughs> um, so if you're a believer, you should experience a greater connection with a believer who isn't of your political persuasion than you do with a non-believer who is. So, so if, if you're wondering if your ears really heard what I just said, let me be a little clear, okay? If you're a believing Republican, you should have a greater connection with a believing Democrat than you do with a non-believing Republican and vice versa. Nobody's saying amen on that. <laughs> so let, let's just talk about this a little bit more. Because if right now you're questioning whether or not a believer can be a Republican or Democrat, then can I just tell you in love that this message has been especially for you? You see, if we have a greater affection for those who share our political views than we do for those who share our gospel identity, then we really don't understand either the gospel or our identity. In fact, I would say if you're, if you're like getting upset and angry right now, this message is for you. You're not understanding how the gospel, how what Jesus did for you on the cross shapes how you view yourself and how you view others. If you're getting upset that I possibly said, let's just be honest here because this is where it comes to bear for most of us. If you're getting upset today that I just told you that you should have a better relationship with a believing Democrat than you should with a non-believing Republican, that's because you are making politics more important than the gospel in your life. The gospel is the fact that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, and rose again. And I just want to tell you, that's going to last a long, 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 long time, a lot longer than the Republican or the Democratic parties. Yes. And so I'm not telling you that your um, political stances... Okay, and viewpoints aren't important. They are important. But what I am saying is that the gospel is more important, way more important. And the gospel tells us that even though we may have dis, uh, deep disagreements over politics, we're one in Christ. We are members of the same body. We are brothers and sisters in the same eternal family, and therefore we need to act like it. By the way, if you have any... Uh, issues about this and you want to talk to somebody, you can email Clay Baker at HarmonyBibleChurch.org, <laughs> Andrew Weiss at HarmonyBibleChurch.org, or Matthew Mitchell at HarmonyBibleChurch.org. They will be happy to interact with you this week. <laughs> I love you guys. Have fun this week, okay? <laughs> now, let, let, me tell you, let me tell you why all of this is so vital. And, and by the way, I, I just want you to know, I, I say this 
Maybe I'll just, just be transparent here for a second. I don't get nervous when I'm writing my sermons, like never. I've, I've been nervous about this. And I've wrestled about what I've just said, like, a, a lot. Uh, but I just com- feel compelled that by the Spirit that it needs to be said. And that we need to wrestle and we need to grow in this area. And let me tell you why it's such a big deal. I know you might be really wrestling with what I just said, but, but please listen as I point out what's at stake in all of this. What's at stake in all of this is our witness. In John 13, Jesus tells the disciples this. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. But by the way, just think about Jesus' disciples, all right? There's Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Matthew, the tax the liberal working with the Roman government. There, it, it, there is the, the, the zealot guy over here who, who is fighting for the freedom of, of Israel. So we got liberals and we got conservatives, all right? And Jesus tells them, you need to put aside your political issues, all right? And you need to love one another. And why do you need to love one another? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Friends, our witness for Jesus in the world is at stake. And when we love one another, despite all of the differences that we have, we give a great testimony to Jesus Christ. And when we don't, when we fight and when we bicker and when we divide over matters of ethnicity, citizenship, or politics, we point people away from him. Harmony, listen, we live in a bitterly, bitterly divided day And the division is getting worse all the time. And yet, this gives us a great opportunity. And it gives us a great opportunity because we have a message of peace. We have the message of peace. The message that reconciles people first to God and then to one another. Let's let's preach that message and then let's go out and let's live in light of it. Just think about it this way. We, we, we claim to have this message of peace where people can be at peace with God and peace with one another, but then we don't go out and live in that way. What are we doing? What are we doing? We're directing people away from the gospel instead of to the gospel. And so as people who have been reconciled to God, in fact, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, you've been reconciled to God. Now go out and be ministers of reconciliation. That's what we are called to be. Let's go out and let's be that in the days ahead. Why don't you pray with me now?